Hunter from the Modern Heathen Man. I want to welcome you today to the show. Today we're going back to old school and we're doing some Children of Odin by Padraig Colum. Um, these old stories are the stories of the gods and their deeds and their misdeeds and everything else. And I like I used to put it on for Tuesday story time and we've missed that a couple weeks now. So I just want to get back to that. I'm going to put three stories on today for you to listen to. Um, these are available through LibriVox for free. Um, you can download it and listen to it all you want. So if you'd like to, uh, you can download it there. I want to thank everybody for listening today. Um, I'm going to put some promos on for those heathen businesses as well in between the stories. And I want to thank you all for listening to my podcast and tell you all to have a wonderful day. Um, today is uh, Sunni's day. So hail Sunni today and uh, have a good day, guys. Thanks. Joe here from the Modern Heathen Man. I was looking for some new stuff for my beard, and I was looking around, and I wanted something my wife would like as well. I was looking for a good product that didn't leave my beard feeling greasy, that nourished it and kept it moist, and had a good scent to it as well. Um, so in discussing with my wife, we tried a few different things, and I found this wonderful heathen place called Beast Curiosities. Now, they don't just offer beard oil. They have quite a few different products available through them. Um, you definitely want to go ahead and check them out at BeastCuriosities.com. But I specifically tried the beard oil. Um, I tried Hell's Respite. I tried Tears Loyalty. And I tried, give me one second, Yord's Wilderness. All of these were really great beard oils. They all had wonderful scents that lasted a long time and would stay with me throughout the whole day. They nourished my beard and kept it good. And they also made it that it felt nice and was good to smell. And other people around me liked it quite a bit. So when you actually get in their oils, they tried really hard to produce an oil that does what it says it's going to do while nourishing your beard as well. They tried a few products so they got the great one together and they call it their magical beard oil i will tell you it is magical it smells great even after going to the pool with my wife for about three hours my beard still smelled great and felt great so with that said i'm going to tell you to go ahead and check them out again they're not only beard oil but beast curiosity is a place you want to go beastcuriosities.com you can also email him and check out his products at beast at beastcuriosities.com. They have a Twitter account at bscuriosities, and you can also find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash beastcuriosities. You definitely want to go out and get some of this if you have a beard. It is a wonderful product, something great to use. My wife and her friends all love this product quite a bit. So go ahead and get it if you get a chance, guys. It's a wonderful product. Thank you, guys, and have a great day. Section 18 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Colum. Part 3. Chapter 6. Baldur's Doom. In Asgard there were two places that meant strength and joy to the Aesir and the Vanir. One was the garden where grew the apples that Iduna gathered 
and the other was the Peace-stead, where, in a palace called Breidablik, Baldur the Well-Beloved dwelt. In the Peace-stead no crime had ever been committed, no blood had ever been shed, no falseness had ever been spoken. Contentment came into the minds of all in Asgard when they thought upon this place. Ah, were it not that the Peace-stead was there, happy with Baldur's presence, the minds of the Aesir and the Vanir might have become gloomy and stern from thinking on the direful things that were arrayed against them. Baldur was beautiful. So beautiful was he that all the white blossoms on the earth were called by his name. Baldur was happy. So happy was he that all the birds on the earth sang his name. So just and so wise was Baldur that the judgment he pronounced might never be altered. Nothing foul or unclean had ever come near where he had his dwelling. Tis Breidablik called, where Baldur the Fair hath built him a bower, in the land where I know least loathliness lies. Healing things were done in Baldur's stead. Tyr's wrist was healed of the wounds that Fenrir's fangs had made, and there Frey's mind became less troubled with the foreboding that Loki had filled it with when he railed at him about the bartering of his sword. Now, after Fenrir had been bound to the rock in the faraway island, the Aesir and the Vanir knew a while of contentment. They passed bright days in Baldur's stead, listening to the birds that made music there. And it was there that Bragi the poet wove into his never-ending story the tale of Thor's adventures amongst the giants. But even into Baldur's stead foreboding came. One day, little Hnosa, the child of Freya and the lost Odur, was brought there in such sorrow that no one outside could comfort her. Nanna, Baldur's gentle wife, took the child upon her lap and found ways of soothing her. Then Hinosa told of a dream that had filled her with fright. She had dreamt of Hela, the queen that is half-living woman and half-corpse. In her dream Hela had come into Asgard, saying, A lord of the Aesir I must have to dwell with me in my realm below the earth. Hinosa had such fear from this dream that she had fallen into a deep sorrow. A silence fell upon all when the dream of Hnosa was told. Nanna looked wistfully at Odin All-Father. And Odin, looking at Frigga, saw that a fear had entered her breast. He left the peace-stead and went to his watch-tower, Hlidskjalf. He waited there till Hugin and Munich had come to him. Every day his two ravens flew through the world, and coming back to him told him of all that was happening and now they might tell him of happenings that would let him guess if Hela had indeed turned her thoughts toward Asgard, or if she had the power to draw one down to her dismal abode. The ravens flew to him, and lighting one on each of his shoulders, told him of things that were being said up and down Yggdrasil, the world-tree. Ratatosk the squirrel was saying them, and Ratatosk had heard them from the brood of serpents that with Nidhogg, the great dragon, gnawed ever at the root of Yggdrasil. He told it to the eagle that sat ever on the topmost bough, that in Hela's habitation a bed was spread, and a chair was left empty for some lordly comer. And hearing this, Odin thought that it were better that Fenrir the wolf should rage ravenously through Asgard than that Hela should win one from amongst them to fill that chair and lie in that bed. He mounted Sleipnir, his eight-legged steed, and rode down toward the abodes of the dead. For three days and three nights of silence and darkness he journeyed on. Once one of the hounds of Helheim broke loose and bayed upon Sleipnir's tracks. 
for a day and night Garm, the hound, pursued them, and Odin smelled the blood that dripped from his monstrous jaws. At last he came to where, wrapped in their shrouds, a field of the dead lay. He dismounted from Sleipnir and called upon one to rise and speak with him. It was on Volva, a dead prophetess, he called. And when he pronounced her name, he uttered a rune that had the power to break the sleep of the dead. There was a groaning in the middle of where the shrouded ones lay. Then Odin cried out, Arise, Volva, prophetess. There was a stir in the middle of where the shrouded ones lay, and a head and shoulders were thrust up from amongst the dead. Who calls on Volva the prophetess? The rains have drenched my flesh, and the storms have shaken my bones for more seasons than the living know. No living voice has a right to call me from my sleep with the dead. It is Vegtam, the wanderer, who calls. For whom is the bed prepared and the seat left empty in Hela's habitation? For Baldur, Odin's son, is the bed prepared and the seat left empty. Now let me go back to my sleep with the dead." But now Odin saw beyond Volva's prophecy. "'Who is it,' he cried out, "'that stands with unbowed head and that will not lament for Baldur? Answer, Volva, prophetess. Thou seest far, but thou canst not see clearly. Thou art Odin. I can see clearly, but I cannot see far. Now let me go back to my sleep with the dead. Volva, prophetess, Odin cried out again. But the voice from amongst the shrouded ones said, Thou canst not wake me any more until the fires of Muspelheim blaze above my head. Then there was silence in the field of the dead, and Odin turned Sleipnir, his steed, and for four days, through the gloom and silence, he journeyed back to Asgard. Frigga had felt the fear that Odin had felt. She looked toward Baldur, and the shade of Hela came between her and her son. But then she heard the birds sing in the peace-stead, and she knew that none of all the things in the world would injure Baldur. And to make it sure, she went to all the things that could hurt him, and from each of them she took an oath that it would not injure Baldur, the well-beloved. She took an oath from fire and from water, from iron and from all metals, from earths and stones and great trees, from birds and beasts and creeping things, from poisons and diseases. Very readily they all gave the oath that they would work no injury on Baldur. Then, when Frigga went back and told what she had accomplished, the gloom that had lain on Asgard lifted. Baldur would be spared to them. Hela might have a place prepared in her dark habitation, but neither fire nor water, nor iron nor any metals, nor earths, nor stones, nor great woods, nor birds, nor beasts, nor creeping things, nor poisons, nor diseases, would help her to bring him down. Hela has no arms to draw you to her, the Aesir and the Vanir cried to Baldur. Hope was renewed for them, and they made games to honor Baldur. They had him stand in the peace-stead, and they brought against him all the things that had sworn to leave him hurtless. And neither the battle-axe flung full at him, nor the stone out of the sling, nor the burning brand, nor the deluge of water would injure the beloved of Asgard. The Aesir and the Vanir laughed joyously to see these things fall harmlessly from him, while a throng came to join them in the games, dwarfs and friendly giants. But Loki the hater came in with that throng. He watched the games from afar. He saw the missiles and the weapons being flung, 
and he saw Baldur stand smiling and happy under the strokes of metal and stones and great woods. He wondered at the sight, but he knew that he might not ask the meaning of it from the ones who knew him. He changed his shape into that of an old woman, and he went amongst these who were making sport for Baldur. He spoke to dwarfs and friendly giants. "'Go to Frigga and ask! Go to Frigga and ask!' was all the answer Loki got from any of them. Then to Fensalir, Frigga's mansion, Loki went. He told those in the mansion that he was Groa, the old enchantress who was drawing out of Thor's head the fragments of a grindstone that a giant's throw had embedded in it. Frigga knew about Groa, and she praised the enchantress for what she had done. "'Many fragments of the great grindstone have I taken out of Thor's head by the charms, I know,' said the pretended Groa. Thor was so grateful that he brought back to me the husband that he once had carried off to the end of the earth. So overjoyed was I to find my husband restored that I forgot the rest of the charms, and I left some fragments of the stone in Thor's head." So Loki said, repeating a story that was true. "'Now I remember the rest of the charm,' he said, and I can draw out the fragments of the stone that are left. But will you not tell me, O Queen? What is the meaning of the extraordinary things I saw the Aesir and the Vanir doing?" "'I will tell you,' said Frigga, looking kindly and happily at the pretended old woman. "'They are hurling all manner of heavy and dangerous things at Baldur, my beloved son, and all Asgard cheers to see that neither metal nor stone nor great wood will hurt him.' "'But why will they not hurt him?' said the pretended enchantress. "'Because I have drawn an oath from all dangerous and threatening things to leave Baldur hurtless,' said Frigga. "'From all things, lady? Is there no thing in all the world that has not taken an oath to leave Baldur hurtless?' "'Well, indeed, there is one thing that has not taken the oath, but that thing is so small and weak that I passed it by without taking thought of it.' "'What can it be, lady?' "'The mistletoe, that is without root or strength. It grows on the eastern side of Valhalla. I passed it by without drawing an oath from it." "'Surely you were not wrong to pass it by. What could the mistletoe, the rootless mistletoe, do against Baldur?' Saying this the pretended enchantress hobbled off. But not far did the pretender go hobbling. He changed his gait and hurried to the eastern side of Valhalla. There a great oak-tree flourished, and out of a branch of it a little bush of mistletoe grew. Loki broke off a spray and with it in his hand he went to where the Aesir and the Vanir were still playing games to honour Baldur. All were laughing as Loki drew near, for the giants and the dwarfs, the Asinir and the Vana, were all casting missiles. The giants threw too far, and the dwarfs could not throw far enough, while the Asinir and the Vana threw far and wide of the mark. In the midst of all that glee and gamesomeness it was strange to see one standing joyless. But so he stood, and he was of the Aesir, Hodur, Baldur's blind brother. "'Why do you not enter the game?' said Loki to him in his changed voice. "'I have no missile to throw at Baldur,' Hodur said. "'Take this and throw it,' said Loki. "'It is a twig of the mistletoe.' "'I cannot see to throw it,' said Hodur. "'I will guide your hand,' said Loki. He put the twig of mistletoe in Hodur's hand, and he guided the hand for the throw. The twig flew toward Baldur. It struck him on the breast, and it pierced him. Then Baldur fell down with a deep groan. The Aesir and the Vanir, the dwarfs and the friendly giants, 
stood still in doubt and fear and amazement. Loki slipped away, and blind Hodur, from whose hand the twig of mistletoe had gone, stood quiet, not knowing that his throw had bereft Baldur of life. Then a wailing rose around the peace-stead. It was from the Asunir and the Vana. Baldur was dead, and they began to lament him. And while they were lamenting him, the beloved of Asgard, Odin, came amongst them. "'Hela has won our Baldur from us,' Odin said to Frigga, as they both bent over the body of their beloved son. "'Nay, I will not say it,' Frigga said. When the Aesir and the Vanir had won their senses back, the mother of Baldur went amongst them. "'Who amongst you would win my love and good will?' she said. "'Whoever would let him ride down to Hela's dark realm and ask the queen to take ransom for Baldur? It may be she will take it and let Baldur come back to us. Who amongst you will go? Odin's steed is ready for the journey.' Then forth stepped Hermod the nimble, the brother of Baldur. He mounted Sleipnir, and turned the eight-legged steed down toward Hela's dark realm. For nine days and nine nights Hermod rode on. His way was through rugged glens, one deeper and darker than the other. He came to the river that is called Gjol, and to the bridge across it that is all glittering with gold. The pale maid who guards the bridge spoke to him. "'The hue of life is still on thee,' said Modgudur, the pale maid. "'Why dost thou journey down to Hela's deathly realm?' I am Hermod, he said, and I go to see if Hela will take ransom for Baldur. Fearful is Hela's habitation for one to come to, said Modgudur, the pale maid. All round it is a steep wall that even thy steed might hardly leap. Its threshold is precipice. The bed therein is care, the table is hunger, the hanging of the chamber is burning anguish. It may be that Hela will take ransom for Baldur. If all things in the world still lament for Baldur, Hela will have to take ransom and let him go from her," said Modgudur, the pale maid that guards the glittering bridge. "'It is well, then, for all things lament Baldur. I will go to her and make her take ransom." "'Thou mayst not pass until it is of a surety that all things still lament him. Go back to the world and make sure. If thou dost come to this glittering bridge and tell me that all things still lament Baldur, I will let thee pass, and Hela will have to hearken to thee. I will come back to thee, and thou, Modgudur, pale maid, will have to let me pass. Then I will let thee pass," said Modgudur. Joyously Hermod turned Sleipnir and rode back through the rugged glens, each one less gloomy than the other. He reached the upper world, and saw that all things were still lamenting for Baldur. Joyously Hermod rode onward. He met the Vanir in the middle of the world, and he told them the happy tidings. Then Hermod and the Vanir went through the world, seeking out each thing and finding that each thing still wept for Baldur. But one day Hermod came upon a crow that was sitting on the dead branch of a tree. The crow made no lament as he came near. She rose up and flew away, and Hermod followed her to make sure that she lamented for Baldur. He lost sight of her near a cave and then before the cave he saw a hag with blackened teeth who raised no voice of lament. "'If thou art the crow that came flying here, make lament for Baldur,' Hermod said. "'I, Thaukt, will make no lament for Baldur,' the hag said. "'Let Hela keep what she holds.' "'All things weep tears for Baldur,' Hermod said. 
I will weep dry tears for him," said the hag. She hobbled into her cave, and as Hermod followed, a crow fluttered out. He knew that this was Thaukt, the evil hag, transformed. He followed her, and she went through the world croaking, "'Let Hela keep what she holds, let Hela keep what she holds.'" Then Hermod knew that he might not ride to Hela's habitation. All things knew that there was one thing in the world that would not lament for Baldur. The Vanir came back to him, and with head bowed over Sleipnir's mane, Hermod rode into Asgard. Now the Aesir and the Vanir, knowing that no ransom would be taken for Baldur, and that the joy and content of Asgard were gone indeed, made ready his body for the burning. First they covered Baldur's body with a rich robe, and each left beside it his most precious possession. Then they all took leave of him, kissing him upon the brow. But Nanna, his gentle wife, flung herself on his dead breast, and her heart broke, and she died of grief. Then did the Aesir and the Vanir weep afresh. And they took the body of Nanna, and they placed it side by side with Baldur's. On his own great ship, Ringhorn, would Baldur be placed with Nanna beside him. Then the ship would be launched on the water, and all would be burned with fire. But it was found that none of the Aesir or the Vanir were able to launch Baldur's great ship. Hirokin, a giantess, was sent for. She came mounted on a great wolf with twisted serpents for a bridle. Four giants held fast the wolf when she alighted. She came to the ship, and with a single push she sent it into the sea. The rollers struck out fire as the ship dashed across them. Then when it rode the water, fires mounted on the ship. And in the blaze of the fires one was seen bending over the body of Baldur and whispering into his ear. It was Odin, All-Father. Then he went down off the ship, and all the fires rose into a mighty burning. Speechlessly the Aesir and the Vanir watched with tears streaming down their faces, while all things lamented, crying, Baldur, the beautiful, is dead, is dead. And what was it that Odin All-Father whispered to Baldur as he bent above him, with the flames of the burning ship around? He whispered of a heaven above Asgard that Surtur's flames might not reach, and of a life that would come to beauty again, after the world of men and the world of the gods had been searched through and through with fire. End of section 18 guys joe here from the modern heathen man how are you guys tonight i hope i'm meeting you well anyway i wanted to tell you guys while i'm out traveling it's not always feasible to carry my whole big altar box with me so sometimes i like a little something in my pocket and i found a great place to get that from that's odin's beard woodworking great little place out there it makes small little pocket altars for you with candles and um gods and everything and little sayings and such wonderful work that this man does carves everything by hand he has a couple things going on here 
He has little pocket altars that I'm talking about for $25. He has small dini poles of five to six inches for $40, seven to eight inches for $45, nine to 10 for $50, and 11 to 12 for $60. He has 26 different deities to choose from and more coming every day. Your choices right now are Odin, Thor, Tyr, Loki, Freyr, Balder, Bragi, Hemdall, Njord, Fenrir, Ullr, Vidar, Hermod, Hel, Freya, Ostri, Skadi, Sif, Er, Frigg, Var, Thrud, Idun, Sigun, Ran, and Yord. That's a lot of different gods to choose from. So he can meet anybody's needs. Tell him what you want. You can go ahead and find him at www.odinsbeardwoodworking.com. He also has a Facebook page, and I know he does some stuff live every once in a while that you can actually watch him carve those things. Anyway, give him a good uh, look-see there and see if he has something that you can use. I guarantee his little pocket ultras will come in handy for you. So anyway, thanks, guys. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Section 17 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 3. Chapter 5. The Children of Loki. The children of Loki and the witch Angerboda were not as the children of men. They were formless as water, or air, or fire is formless but it was given to each of them to take on the form that was most like to their own greed. Now the dwellers in Asgard knew that these powers of evil had been born into the world, and they thought it well that they should take on forms and appear before them in Asgard. So they sent one to Jarnvid, the iron wood, bidding Loki bring before the gods the powers born of him and the witch Angerboda. So Loki came into Asgard once more and his offspring took on forms and showed themselves to the gods. The first, whose greed was destruction, showed himself as a fearful wolf. Fenrir he was named. And the second, whose greed was slow destruction, showed itself as a serpent. Jormungand, it was called. The third, whose greed was for withering of all life, took on a form also. When the gods saw it they were affrighted. For this had the form of a woman, and one side of her was that of a living woman, and the other side of her was that of a corpse. Fear ran through Asgard as this form was revealed, and as the name that went with it, Hela, was uttered. Far out of sight of the gods Hela was thrust. Odin took her and hurled her down to the deeps that are below the world. He cast her down to Niflheim, where she took to herself power over the nine regions. There, in the place that is lowest of all, Hela reigns. Her hall is Elvidnir, it is set round with high walls, and it has barred gates. Precipice is the threshold of that hall, hunger is the table within it, care is the bed, and burning anguish is the hanging of the chamber. Thor laid hold upon Jormungand. He flung the serpent into the ocean that engirdles the world. But in the depths of the ocean Jormungand flourished. It grew and grew until it encircled the whole world, and men knew it as the Midgard serpent. Fenrir the wolf might not be seized upon by any of the Aesir. 
Fearfully he ranged through Asgard, and they were only able to bring him to the outer courts by promising to give him all the food he was able to eat. The Aesir shrank from feeding Fenrir, but Tyr, the brave swordsman, was willing to bring food to the wolf's lair. Every day he brought him huge provision and fed him with the point of his sword. The wolf grew and grew, until he became monstrous and a terror in the minds of the dwellers in Asgard. At last the gods in council considered it, and decided that Fenrir must be bound. The chain that they would bind him with was called leading. In their own smithy the gods made it, and its weight was greater than Thor's hammer. Not by force could the gods get the fetter upon Fenrir, so they sent Skirnir, the servant of Frey, to beguile the wolf into letting it go upon him. Skirnir came to his lair and stood near him, and he was dwarfed by the wolf's monstrous size. "'How great may thy strength be, mighty one?' Skirnir asked. "'Couldst thou break this chain easily? The gods would try thee.' In scorn Fenrir looked down on the fetter Skirnir dragged. In scorn he stood still allowing leading to be placed upon him. Then, with an effort that was the least part of his strength, he stretched himself and broke the chain in two. The gods were dismayed, but they took more iron, and with greater fires and mightier hammer-blows they forged another fetter. Dromi, this one was called, and it was half again as strong as leading was. Skirnir the Venturesome brought it to the wolf's lair, and in scorn Fenrir let the mightier chain be placed upon him. He shook himself, and the chain held. Then his eyes became fiery, and he stretched himself with a growl and a snarl. Dromi broke across, and Fenrir stood looking balefully at Skirnir. The gods saw that no chain they could forge would bind Fenrir, and they fell more and more into fear of him. They took counsel again, and they bethought them of the wonder-work the dwarfs had made for them, the spear Gunnir, the ship Skidbladnir, the hammer Mjolnir. Could the dwarfs be got to make the fetter to bind Fenrir? If they would do it, the gods would add to their domain. Skirnir went down to Svartheim with the message from Asgard. The dwarf chief swelled with pride to think that it was left to them to make the fetter that would bind Fenrir. "'We dwarfs can make a fetter that will bind the wolf,' he said. "'Out of six things we will make it.' "'What are these six things?' Skirnir asked. "'The roots of stones, the breath of a fish, the beards of women, the noise made by the footfalls of cats, the sinews of bears, the spittle of a bird. I have never heard the noise made by a cat's footfall, nor have I seen the roots of stones, nor the beards of women. But use what things you will, O helper of the gods." The chief brought his six things together, and the dwarfs in their smithy worked for days and nights. They forged a fetter that was named Gleipnir. Smooth and soft as a silken string it was, Skirnir brought it to Asgard and put it into the hands of the gods. Then a day came when the gods said that once again they should try to put a fetter upon Fenrir. But if he was to be bound, they would bind him far from Asgard. Lingvi was an island that they often went to make sport, and they spoke of going there. Fenrir growled that he would go with them. He came and he sported in his own terrible way, and then as if it were to make more sport, one of the Aesir shook out the smooth cord and showed it to Fenrir. "'It is stronger than you might think, mighty one,' they said. "'Will you not let it go upon you, that we may see you break it?' Fenrir out of his fiery eyes looked scorn upon them. 
"'What fame would there be for me,' he said, "'in breaking such a binding?' They showed him that none in their company might break it, slender as it was. "'Thou only art able to break it, mighty one,' they said. "'The cord is slender, but there may be an enchantment in it,' Fenrir said. "'Thou canst not break it, Fenrir, and we need not dread thee any more,' the gods said. Then was the wolf ravenous wroth, for he lived on the fear that he made in the minds of the gods. "'I am loath to have this binding upon me,' he said. "'But if one of the Aesir will put his hand in my mouth as a pledge that I shall be freed of it, I will let ye put it on me.' The gods looked wistfully at one another. It would be health to them all to have Fenrir bound, but who would lose his hand to have it done? One and then another of the Aesir stepped backward. But not Tyr, the brave swordsman. He stepped to Fenrir, and laid his left hand before those tremendous jaws. "'Not thy left hand, thy sword-hand, O Tyr,' growled Fenrir, and Tyr put his sword-hand into that terrible mouth. Then the cord Gleipnir was put upon Fenrir. With fiery eyes he watched the gods bind him. When the binding was on him he stretched himself as before. He stretched himself to a monstrous size but the binding did not break off him. Then with a fury he snapped his jaws upon the hand, and Tyr's hand, the swordsman's hand, was torn off. But Fenrir was bound. They fixed a mighty chain to the fetter, and they passed the chain through a hole they bored through a great rock. The monstrous wolf made terrible efforts to break loose, but the rock and the chain and the fetter held. Then, seeing him secured, and to avenge the loss of Tyr's hand, the gods took Tyr's sword and drove it to the hilt through his underjaw. Horribly the wolf howled, mightily the foam flowed down from his jaws. The foam flowing made a river that is called Vaughn, a river of fury, that flowed on until Ragnarok came, the twilight of the gods. End of section 17 Hey guys, this is Joe at Modern Heathen Man. How are you all today? Hoping you're having a good and uh, great day. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys about this YouTube channel that I found called Midgard Musings. It's by a man named Jesse and it is incredible. He has new videos uploaded on the channel every Sunday night and he has a live Facebook stream every Sunday at 7pm um, Central Standard Time. Midgard Musings' goal is to help build heathen communities around the world with educational content and laid-back fun manner. He values the historical aspect of this path and uses it to help us grow and develop as heathens in modern times. So if you've been a heathen for a while or just brand new to it, definitely check it out. It's something worthwhile. If you'd like to support Midgard Musings by subscribing to youtube.com forward slash Midgard Musings, following on Facebook and purchasing merchandise from the Teespring and Redbubs, Redbubble stores. Redbubble, say that three times. All of which can be found on the YouTube channel video description. 
Midgard Musing also offers handmade driftwood rune sets for sale, and the purchase of these items help support the channel. Just to touch base on that a little bit, I actually own one of those rune sets. They are incredibly nice, good feel, wonderful stuff, good power within them. I'm telling you, worthwhile checking out. So please head on over to Midgard Musings, like and subscribe to the channel, and follow on Facebook and on YouTube at facebook.com slash midgardmusings and youtube.com slash midgardmusings. M-I-D-G-A-R-D-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. We'll find you that Midgard Musings. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Section 16 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin. The Book of Northern Myths. By Parik Colum. Part 3. Chapter 3. Loki against the Aesir. The Aesir were the guests of the Vanir. In Frey's palace the dwellers in Asgard met and feasted in friendship. Odin and Tyr were there, Vidar and Vali, Njord, Frey, Heimdall, and Bragi. The Sinjur and the Vana were also, Frigga, Freya, Iduna, Gerda, Skadi, Sif, and Nanna. Thor and Loki were not at the feast, for they had left Asgard together. In Frey's palace the vessels were of shining gold. They made light for the table, and they moved of their own accord to serve those who were feasting. All was peace and friendship there, until Loki entered the feast-hall. Frey, smiling a welcome, showed a bench to Loki. It was beside Bragi's and next to Freya's. Loki did not take the place. Instead he shouted out, "'Not beside Bragi will I sit, not beside Bragi, the most craven of all the dwellers in Asgard.' Bragi sprang up at that affront, but his wife, the mild Iduna, quieted his anger. Freya turned to Loki and reproved him for speaking injurious words at a feast. "'Freya,' said Loki, "'why were you not so mild when Odur was with you? Would it not have been well to have been wifely with your husband, instead of breaking faith with him for the sake of a necklace that you craved of the giant women?' Amazement fell on all at the bitterness that was in Loki's words and looks. Tyr and Njord stood up from their seats. But then the voice of Odin was heard, and all was still for the words of the All-Father. "'Take the place beside Vidar, my silent son, O Loki,' said Odin, "'and let thy tongue which drips bitterness be silent. All the Aesir and the Vanir listen to thy words, O Odin, as if thou wert always wise and just,' Loki said. But must we forget that thou didst bring war into the world when thou didst fling thy spear at the envoys of the Vanir? And didst thou not permit me to work craftily on the one who built the wall around Asgard for a price? Thou dost speak, O Odin, and all the Aesir and the Vanir listen to thee. But was it not thou, who, thinking not of wisdom but of gold when a ransom had to be made, brought the witch Gulveig out of the cave where she stayed with the dwarf's treasure? Thou wert not always wise, nor always just, O Odin, and we at the table here need not listen to thee as if always thou wert. Then Skadi, the wife of Njord, flung words at Loki. She spoke with all the fierceness of her giant blood. Why should we not rise up and chase from the hall this chattering crow? 
she said. Scotty, said Loki, remember that the ransom for thy father's death has not yet been paid. Thou wert glad to snatch a husband instead of it. Remember who it was that killed thy giant father. It was I, Loki, and no ransom have I paid thee for it, although thou hast come amongst us in Asgard. Then Loki fixed his eyes on Frey, the giver of the feast, and all knew that with bitter words he was about to assail him. But Tyr, the brave swordsman, rose up and said, Not against Frey mayst thou speak, O Loki. Frey is generous. He is the one amongst us who spares the vanquished and frees the captive. Cease speaking, Tyr, said Loki. Thou mayst not always have a hand to hold that sword of thine. Remember this saying of mine in days to come. Frey, said he, because thou art the giver of the feast, they think I will not speak the truth about thee. But I am not to be bribed by a feast. Didst thou not send Skirnir to Gimer's dwelling to befool Gimer's flighty daughter? Didst thou not bribe him into frightening her into a marriage with thee, who, men say, wert the slayer of her brother? Yea, Frey, thou didst part with a charge with the magic sword that thou shouldst have kept for the battle. Thou hadst cause to grieve when thou didst meet Belly by the lake. When he said this, all who were there of the Vanir rose up, their faces threatening Loki. "'Sit still, ye Vanir,' Loki railed. "'If the Aesir are to bear the brunt of Jotunheim's and Muspelheim's war upon Asgard, it was your part to be the first or the last on Vigard's plain. But already ye have lost the battle for Asgard, for the weapon that was put into Frey's hands he bartered for Gerda the giantess. Ha! Surtur shall triumph over you because of Frey's bewitchment.' In horror they looked at the one who could let his hatred speak of Surtur's triumph. All would have laid hands on Loki, only Odin's voice rang out. Then another appeared at the entrance of the feasting-hall. It was Thor. With his hammer upon his shoulder, his gloves of iron on his hands, and his belt of prowess around him, he stood marking Loki with wrathful eyes. "'Ha! Loki! Betrayer!' he shouted. "'Thou didst plan to leave me dead in Geriod's house, but now thou wilt meet death by the stroke of this hammer." His hands were raised to hurl Mjolnir, but the words that Odin spoke were heard. "'Not in this hall may slaying be done, son Thor. Keep thy hands upon thy hammer.' Then, shrinking from the wrath in the eyes of Thor, Loki passed out of the feast-hall. He went beyond the walls of Asgard, and crossed Bifrost to the Rainbow Bridge. And he cursed Bifrost and longed to see the day when the armies of Muspelheim would break it down in their rush against Asgard. East of Midgard there was a place more evil than any region in Jotunheim. It was Jarnvid, the Iron Wood. There dwelt witches who were the most foul of all witches, and they had a queen over them, a hag, mother of many sons who took upon themselves the shape of wolves. Two of her sons were Skoll and Hati, who pursued Saul, the son, and Mani, the moon. She had a third son, who was Managarm, the wolf who was to be filled with the life-blood of men, who was to swallow up the moon, and stain the heavens and earth with blood. To Jarnvid, the iron wood, Loki made his way, and he wed one of the witches there, Angerboda, and they had children that took on dread shapes. Loki's offspring were the most terrible of the foes that were to come against the Aesir and the Vanir in the time that was called the Twilight of the Gods. Chapter 4 
The Valkyrie Against the time when the riders of Muspelheim, with the giants and the evil powers of the underworld, would bring on battle, Odin Allfather was preparing a host of defenders for Asgard. They were not of the Aesir, nor of the Vanir. They were of the race of mortal men, heroes chosen from amongst the slain on fields of battle in Midgard. To choose the heroes, and to give victory to those he willed to have victory, Odin had battle-maidens that went to the fields of war. Beautiful were those battle-maidens and fearless. Wise were they also, for to them Odin showed the runes of wisdom. Valkyries, choosers of the slain, they were named. Those who were chosen on the fields of the slain were called in Asgard the Einherjar. For them Odin made ready a great hall, Valhalla, the hall of the slain, it was called. Five hundred and forty doors had Valhalla, and out of each door eight hundred champions might pass. Every day the champions put on their armor, and took their weapons down from the walls, and went forth and battled with each other. All who were wounded were made whole again, and in peace and goodly fellowship they sat down to the feast that Odin prepared for them. Odin himself sat with his champions, drinking wine, but eating no meat. For meat the champions ate the flesh of the boar Sirimnir. Every day the boar was killed and cooked, and every morning it was whole again. For drink they had the mead that was made from the milk of the goat Hydron, the goat that browsed on the leaves of the tree Liradir. And the Valkyries, the wise and fearless battle-maidens, went amongst them, filling up the drinking-horns with the heady mead. Youngest of all the battle-maidens was Brynhild. Nevertheless, to her Odin All-Father had shown more of the runes of wisdom than he had shown to any of her sisters, and when the time came for Brynhild to journey down into Midgard, he gave her a swan-feather dress, such as he had given before to the three Valkyrie sisters, Alvit, Ulrun, and Hladgrun. In the dazzling plumage of a swan the young battle-maiden flew down from Asgard. Not yet had she to go to the battlefields. Waters drew her and as she waited on the will of the All-Father, she sought out a lake that had golden sands for its shore, and as a maiden bathed in it. Now there dwelt near this lake a young hero whose name was Agnar, and one day as Agnar lay by the lake he saw a swan with dazzling plumage fly down to it, and while she was in the reeds the swan-feather dress slipped off her, and Agnar beheld the swan change to a maiden. So bright was her hair, so strong and swift were all her movements, that he knew her for one of Odin's battle-maidens, for one of those who give victory and choose the slain. Very daring was Agnar, and he set his mind upon capturing this battle-maiden, even though he should bring on himself the wrath of Odin by doing it. He hid the swan-feather dress that she had left in the reeds. When she came out of the water she might not fly away. Agnar gave back to her the swan-feather dress, but she had to promise that she would be his battle-maiden. And as they talked together, the young Valkyrie saw in him a hero that one from Asgard might help. Very brave and very noble was Agnar. Brynhild went with him as his battle-maiden, and she told him much from the runes of wisdom that she knew, and she showed him that the All-Father's last hope was in the bravery of the heroes of the earth. With the chosen from the slain for his champions, he would make battle in defense of Asgard. Always Brynhild was with Agnar's battalions. Above the battles she hovered, her bright hair and flashing battle-dress outshining the spears and swords and shields of the warriors. 
But the grey-beard King Helmgunnar made war on the young Agnar. Odin favoured the grey-beard king, and to him he promised the victory. Brynhild knew the will of the All-Father. But to Agnar, not to Helmgunnar, she gave the victory. Doomed was Brynhild on the instant she went against Odin's will. Never again might she come into Asgard. A mortal woman she was now, and the Norns began to spin the thread of her mortal destiny. Sorrowful was Odin All-Father that the wisest of his battle-maidens might never appear in Asgard, nor walk by the benches at the feasts of his champions in Valhalla. He rode down on Sleipnir, to where Brynhild was, and when he came before her it was his and not her head that was bowed down. For she knew now that the world of men was paying a bitter price for the strength that Asgard would have in the last battle. The bravest and noblest were being taken from Midgard to fill up the ranks of Odin's champions. And Brynhild's heart was full of anger against the rulers of Asgard, and she cared no more to be of them. Odin looked on his unflinching battle-maiden, and he said, Is there aught thou wouldst have me bestow on thee in thy mortal life, Brynhild? Naught save this, Brynhild answered, that in my mortal life no one but a man without fear the bravest hero in the world, may claim me for wife." All-father bowed his head in thought. "'It shall be as thou hast asked,' he said. "'Only he who is without fear shall come near thee.' Then on the top of the mountain that is called Hindfell he had a hall built that faced the south. Ten dwarfs built it of black stone. And when the hall was built he put round it a wall of mounting and circling fire. More did Odin All-Father. He took a thorn of the Tree of Sleep, and he put it into the flesh of the battle-maiden. Then, with her helmet on her head, and the breast-mail of the Valkyrie upon her, he lifted Brynhild in his arms, and carried her through the wall of mounting and circling fire. He laid her upon the couch that was within the hall. There she would lie in slumber, until the hero who was without fear should ride through the flame, and waken her to the life of a mortal woman. He took farewell of her, and he rode back to Asgard on Sleipnir. He might not foresee what fate would be hers as a mortal woman, but the fire he had left went mounting and circling around the hall that the dwarfs had built. For ages that fire would be a fence around where Brynhild, once a Valkyrie, lay in sleep. End of section 16